We want to uh, say thank you to Amanda Stevenson. Amanda is actually our new church decorator. So just thank you, Amanda. This was her first decorating assignment. So thank you, Amanda. I'm, not sh I'm looking around. I'm not sure if she's here today, but thank you for the decorations you've put together. I just want to start off by warning you about today's message. And that is, today's message is, well, I, I guess I should warn you already about two things. First is that I'm sick. And so if I sneeze, I'll try to make sure that the projectile does not reach to the congregation. I will turn this way. Uh, but I'll try to make sure that doesn't happen. But the second thing, the one I was really going to warn you about, is the fact that today's message is going to take of us the discipline to hear it through to the end. Because it's going to touch on one of those beliefs that we have that is a cherished belief to many of us. And sometimes when we have things that challenge some of our cherished beliefs, it's hard to not let the emotions get in the way too quickly and to hear all the way through to the end. Now, that said, if we get to the end and you still disagree with me, that is completely fine. We can still respect one another. But uh, we're going to try together today to listen through to the end what I believe the Bible teaches on a very important topic. Now, you ask most people about heaven, and they will tell you about a place in the sky filled with angels and smiling dead relatives that you can see through. Uh, if you type in heaven into Google, like I did this week, and you put in Google images, you will get pictures of clouds, you will get pictures of the sky, you'll get many pictures of stairways that go up into the clouds and then kind of disappear into those clouds. Ask people how you get to heaven, and they will tell you in church circles, they will tell you either you have to accept Jesus into your life, or they'll tell you something in some church circles maybe that you just need to live a good life, and if you live a good life, you will be able to get into heaven. Now, interesting, regarding all of these ideas about heaven, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Joy, writes, A glance through the average hymn book reveals that a good many references to the future life beyond death are closer to Tennyson and Shelley, those, those are poets, that they are to Orthodox Christianity. Some of the hymns in the revivalist traditions slip into the easy mistake of suggesting that Jesus will return to take his people away from earth and home into heaven. Now, if that alone comes as a shock to you, uh, it is going to come as a real shock to you when you find out what you will discover when you even type in heaven in Christianity into something like Wikipedia. Particularly if you grew up with the tradition that Christianity is all about Jesus coming back and taking his people out of the earth and away to some home in heaven. In Wikipedia, this is what it says if you type in, at least it's what it said when I typed it in, Wikipedia can change, um, but it says heaven in traditional Christianity is considered a state or condition of existence rather than a particular place somewhere in the cosmos. It's a state or condition of existence of supreme fulfillment of God's finished work, 
where he is in perfect communion with his creation and all things are under his authority. It goes on to say, in the Christian Bible, concepts about the future kingdom of heaven are professed in several scriptural prophecies of the new or renewed earth said to follow the resurrection of the dead, particularly the books of Isaiah and Revelation. Now, if N.T. Wright is correct in what he is saying, if uh, Wikipedia is right in how it's understanding what traditional Christianity teaches about heaven, then the question we have to ask ourselves is how have so many of us strayed in our views about heaven from traditional Orthodox Christianity? Much of the blame, I believe, falls on uh, well-intentioned revivalist preachers of the 19th century that then sort of morphed into television preachers of the 20th century. Uh, Much of their ideas about Christianity and about heaven came from an entertainment, escapist, kind of folksy Christianity that was disconnected from our historical roots. Now, it takes great discipline to read our Bibles without the lens of a particular tradition that we have been brought up in. N.T. Wright again says that good theology is always rooted in good history. One of the reasons why I'm doing an adult Sunday school class on church history. Good theology is rooted in church history. And when we don't know beyond our own generation or two, we can often be blinded in understanding biblical terms, biblical concepts, biblical themes, and biblical verses. Not always, but at times we can. For the passage that we're going to deal with this morning, we need a historical context in which to properly interpret it. We are doing a sermon series through the Gospel of John right now, and we are at a part in John where Jesus completes a two-chapter-long debate in the temple that is oriented around who he is. Many of his claims are appearing to be messianic claims. And the audience in which Jesus is saying this to are reacting even violently to the possibility that this Jesus could be the Messiah. And after the debate has been going back and forth, we now get to today, the very end of the debate. But before I can get there, we need to start with some historical background. And I mean going back, historically, all the way to Genesis chapter 1. Now hopefully this sermon is not going to take all afternoon. But we got to start right from the beginning to give ourselves a biblical and historical context to what Jesus is about to say. In his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, John Walton, and by the way, if you're interested in some of the things I'm going to say now about this book, we have a copy in our church library. You can sign out and you can read it if you'd like. Now, John Walton shows how Ancient Near Eastern cultures built their temples to reflect God's creation or their God's creation. 
And this actually goes far beyond the ancient Near East. If you look even at some of the pictures about the ancient Mayan culture from what is now Mexico, you will see this in their worldview as well. The temple where their gods dwelt was on earth right where the center of their civilization existed. So you see in this cosmology, this picture that I put up on the PowerPoint, their pyramid, their temple is right there in the middle or at the heart of their civilization. That's also why if you study the ancient pyramids, you will see how meticulous they were to line up their pyramids with the stars in the skies. In many ways, they tried to have their temples or their, period, their, their pyramids be maps of the heavens, the skies. And so, uh, you can find right from the constellations, right down from the different seasons, how the alignments of all of their different temples were put together. Their belief was that they could understand the heavens, the cosmos, through the mapping out of their temples. So that they could properly worship their creator God. See, what mattered for the ancients was not so much how God created everything. What mattered for the ancients was how God's creation functioned. And so, if they could understand how God's creation functioned, they then, through their worship of God, could come alongside of him or orient their lives in a way that aligned with creation. That's why so many of their festivals and their religions uh, had things to do with fertility rites. And they would practice certain things. And by practicing these different rituals, sometimes very sexual rituals, they somehow helped along the irrigation of the land, the crops, the harvest. They were seeing themselves as functioning alongside of their creator gods. And so they built their temples in this kind of a way. Understanding this background, what John Walton says in his book is that the Genesis 1 is written out of this cultural background. And so these are the kinds of questions the people that would have first read Genesis 1 would have been asking. So some of the questions that are modern-day scientific questions that we impose or ask of the text are not even questions that the author is trying to answer. The author is not trying to answer questions about the duration of time or how long or how God created as much as he is trying to answer the function of God's creation. And so what Walton does in his book is shows that the early chapter of Genesis 1 appears to be written as if God is building his temple. The same way which many of the ancient temples were built in a seven-fold system. Again, I can't get into all the details. You can pick up the book if you would like to read it. What he shows, though, is that in this sevenfold system, on the sixth layer of building the temple, or in the sixth phase of building the temple, the image of the God would be put in the temple. The idol, the statue, the image of God. And then on the seventh day, the God would come and take up residence in his temple. 
When we look at the Genesis 1 story, this is precisely the same thing that happens. The temple, the creation that God makes, is done in a sevenfold process. On the sixth day of creation, God sets up his image in the temple. It is humanity who is made in the image of God. And then on the seventh day, God's residence comes within the temple and God takes up his rest. John Walton writes, when the deity rests in the temple, it means that he is taking command. That he is mounting his throne to assume his rightful place and proper rule. The psalmist writes along the same theme as well. With the idea that it is here on earth, particularly in their culture, in Jerusalem, that God takes up residence. In the psalms we read, God has declared it for his home. This is my resting place forever, he said. I will live here, for this is the home I desired. The Old Testament concept, the Jewish concept, was not that God's home or our ultimate home was to go away into the heavens somewhere, but that God's intent was to have his throne be here on earth. That this was his throne room, and that we as humanity were his image bearers to carry out Caring for his creation. God created, yes, God is everywhere, we know all of that, but the earth is the center of God's working, and it's through his image bearer's humanity that he governs the cosmos. That was the cosmology of the Jews, it was the cosmology of many of the ancient Near Eastern societies, as we saw from the pictures and we saw from how many different people believed. This theme then of the temple as God's ruling residence with the center of the temple being here on earth then runs throughout the whole biblical story. The temple is a major motif throughout the Bible. Genesis 3 then goes to where the image bearers of God rebel against the God of the temple, the God of the Old Testament, and therefore they are sent away from the presence of God. There becomes a divide between the earthly realm and the physical realm. A holy of holies is set up. There a curtain comes so that the earthly realm can no longer be together and one with the heavenly realm because of sin. It's a barrier now. But God's plan is not to leave humanity in their sinful state. And so... What he does is the opposite of what many people think is a crisis happened and so God flies off into the heaven somewhere and then God sort of waits for certain people to follow him and then he's going to snatch them out of the earth to get them away from this creation of his to save them. The complete opposite happens. Instead, what we find in the Old Testament is God's desire to reestablish his creation and his, human, and his humans, and his created order. And what he does is he develops a temple, starts off in the Old Testament with the Exodus as a tabernacle, as God's meeting place with humanity. The tabernacle becomes the place where heaven and earth meet. So God begins his restoration plan by calling a people, Abraham, 
says, these will be my people. Then when those people are captured and they are in slavery to the Egyptians and they're set free with the ministry of Moses in the wilderness, he gives Moses instructions on building a tabernacle. And God says, I will consecrate the tabernacle. Then... I will live among the people of Israel and be their God, and they will know that I am the Lord their God. The tabernacle is where I'm going to come to earth to dwell among people. Particularly at this point, the people of Israel. The the point of the temple is again where heaven and earth meet. It's the place where Israel's God promises to make his Shekinah glory dwell. In the biblical understanding of things, heaven and earth were always meant to be together, not separated. They were meant to interlock and overlap. The separation, however, is because of sin. The idea behind the tabernacle was for God to restore his creation and live among his people But for those of us who have read the Old Testament and know Israel's story, we know it fails. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, the people of Israel rebel against God, even when God sets up his presence among them in the tabernacle. It's one rebellion after another. And then in about 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Christ, King Solomon comes to the throne, Israel's third king, David's son. King David. And Solomon builds the tabernacle into a temple in Jerusalem. It's where God is now going to take up residence with his people, ruling from his throne in Jerusalem, really God being the true king of Israel. But we know the people continue to rebel, and every time the people rebel, the temple falls into disrepair. It's the story of the temple falling into disrepair, meaning that God, in other words, has left the building. That is why some of the hero kings that follow Solomon, some of the good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, what is a catalyst to their kingly reign? They cleanse the temple. Both Hezekiah and Josiah cleanse the temple reinstitute all of the temple practices in that, in a sense, inviting God back, inviting God's presence back to the people. Yet, the people continue to rebel over and over until God allows his people to be taken over by the Babylonians, and when that happens, the temple is utterly destroyed, and they go off into captivity. God has left the building. But in his mercy, after several years of captivity, the people from Babylon returned to Jerusalem, and under the ministry of Ezra, they rebuild the temple. God, once again, is trying to live among people. But it still doesn't last. Between the Old and New Testament times, what we would call the intertestamental period, we have a king by the name of Antiochus IV. He's from the Seleucid Empire. 
and he fulfills Daniel's prophecy about setting up the abomination of desolation in the temple. What Antiochus IV does is comes right into the Jewish, the Jewish temple, puts up a big statue of Zeus, sacrifices a pig on the altar. I mean, the guy is trying to do everything he can to spit in the face of everything the Jews believe. This incites a revolt led by Judas Maccabeus who raises an army of zealots and in rebellion against Antiochus IV, they come in and cleanse the temple and restore worship to God. Today, Jews celebrate this as Hanukkah. You can also read this story in the apocryphal book of the Maccabees. First and second Maccabees. They, they retell this story of what happened here. All of these figures, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, Ezra, Judas Maccabeus, are all seen as Messiah figures in, Jewish, in the Jewish history. Why? Because each and every one of them re-establishes the temple. That is the place where God is going to dwell with humanity. And yet in every single case, the people keep rebelling. For instance, this is also, uh, knowing his history, why King Herod the Great, you know, the guy that was around when John the Baptist's time, right before Jesus, it's why Herod the Great put such effort into beautifying the temple. It was Herod's way of trying to proclaim that he was the Messiah. He was the king of the Jew. Herod knew the Jewish history. Those who restored the temple were the kingly Messiah for the Jewish people. That's what Herod was trying to make himself out to be, the king of the Jews. It's also why he was so threatened when the wise men came and told him that a king of the Jews had been born. The temple was the heart from the beginning of creation all throughout Israel's story of God's message of his desire to rule the cosmos from earth through his image bearers, humanity. We were called by God to be his image bearers, to govern and to take care of his creation. That's the story. That is the hope. That is why the Messiah, the Messiah figure for the Jews was such an earthy figure. They always believed in a Messiah who was going to come and restore things here on earth. It was never a Jewish belief that the Messiah was going to come to take us away from this place. But the Messiah was coming to restore everything. So we need to understand all of this background as we get to John. The Gospel of John. As we were discussing even today in my adult Sunday school class, many times we approach the scripture unknowingly with more Greek concepts that we use as our interpretive grid in which we read Gospels like John than a Jewish grid like the one I just described. How is John read? How is John understood in light of the Jewish background in which John is writing. And when you understand it that way, you see a huge narrative structure in John's gospel that is mirroring the Old Testament story. 
as fulfilled in Jesus. Notice how when we start at the Gospel of John, it starts just like Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word. John is pointing us right back to our original creation story. And then by John 1 verse 14, we read about how God's Word dwelt among us. The literal translation there is that God's Word, who was Jesus, became the tabernacle among us. Jesus tabernacled. Jesus was the temple among us. God now, through Jesus, is doing what the intent was all throughout the Old Testament of setting up his tabernacle or temple here on earth. And then, throughout John, the temple is at the center of the whole book. John chapter 2. So we have John bringing us back to creation, Jesus coming, tenting, tabernacling among us. Then the very next chapter, John 2, what does Jesus do? He cleanses the temple. Just like Hezekiah, just like Josiah, he is showing himself as the cleanser of the temple, as the Messiah figure. And he even goes farther than the Josiahs and the Hezekiah when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now you could imagine for a people in whose faith The temple was absolutely central. Even the suggestion of destroying this place would seem like the ultimate act of rebellion. In fact, people twist Jesus' words, and it's this claim that is one of the things that gets Jesus nailed to a cross eventually. But Jesus, when he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, the disciples come to realize that after his death and resurrection, Jesus was referring to his body. Jesus is now saying, not only is he cleansing the temple, but he's saying this whole system of temple has come to its conclusion Because it was only a picture and a preparation for the true temple, which is now here among you. John 4 then tells the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman that it's no longer going to be necessary to worship God at the temple. And when she begins to probe Jesus a bit more, he ends up by saying, I who am with you am he, I am the one through whom you will worship God. I am the place where heaven and earth come together. And then in John 7 and 8, Jesus gets into this huge debate about who he is. And the setting is important. It's all happening in the temple. John 7 begins by saying Jesus entered the temple, and then we got two chapters of debate. Like I said last week, 22 questions are thrown at Jesus. He's grilled by them. And then at the end of chapter 8, it says, and Jesus left the temple. The setting is uh, not just nice aesthetics on behalf of John. The setting is key. So with all of that historical background... A very quick snapshot from creation through Israel's story with the temple theme. We get to John's or Jesus' final words in the debate. And knowing all of that is going 
to help us understand what Jesus says here. So at the end of chapter 8, verse 50, this is what we read. Jesus says, and though I have no wish to glorify myself, God is going to glorify me. He is the true judge. I tell you the truth, anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. The people said, now we know you are possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died. But you say anyone who obeys my teaching will never die? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. So did all the great prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I want to glorify myself, if I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it is my Father who will glorify me. You say he is our God. But you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But if you know him and obey him, but I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my, Jesus, my coming. And Abraham saw it and was glad. And the people said to himself, what, what are you saying? You're not even 50 years old. How can you say that you've seen Abraham? Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. And listen to how all this ends. But Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Now, why was this crowd at the end of all of this debate with these final words that Jesus said, why were they picking up stones ready to stone him? Before Abraham was, I am. Were they going to stone Jesus because he had bad grammar? I mean, that's not how you speak. Uh, how you would speak is before Abraham was, I was. That alone is a ridiculous statement. To say before Abraham was, I was, is to claim that you've been, at, you've been alive for at least 2,000 years because you were here before Abraham was here. That, that alone is a ridiculous statement. But why the before Abraham was, I am? The crowd that heard Jesus say this knew how ridiculous this statement was, how blasphemous, which is why they picked up stones to stone him. You see, here we need to know some Bible history as well. Back in Exodus chapter 3, God called Moses out of the burning bush to go to Egypt to tell Pharaoh that the Israelites were no longer going to be subject to him. But that God, speaking through Moses, was about to set them free. Now Moses, knowing that the Egyptians had several gods, 
knew that if he said this to Pharaoh, he might get the question, oh yeah, well, what God's telling you that? And so Moses says to God in the burning bush, if Pharaoh were to ask me what God is telling me this, what God are you the spokesperson from? If Pharaoh were to ask me that, what am I supposed to say? And this is what we read. Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what's his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I am. It's where, translated, we use the word Yahweh. The holy name, or you could almost say the holy unname of God. Because it's almost God giving a name and almost God saying, hey, I'm unnameable. Just say I am. It's a name, Yahweh, I am. It was a name that Orthodox Jews felt was too holy to even utter off of their lips. Which is why Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in Luke and Mark. But in Matthew, Matthew, a book that is primarily written for a Jewish audience, Matthew always has Jesus say kingdom of heaven. Because the word of God I am, was too holy to even be uttered by the Jews. And so Matthew just translates it heaven, so it's at least readable, this concept of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing. But now here, from the mouth of Jesus, in the Jewish temple, the place where Israel believed that God met with his people, the place where heaven and earth came together, here in Israel, in the temple, some guy who, like the kings of old, has cleansed the temple. So both by his actions and by his words, he is claiming to be the Messiah. Now here in the temple, he utters the most holy name of God and claims it for himself. The temple, the place where God comes to meet with his people... Well, I am has arrived. I'm here. Heaven has come to earth in the person of Jesus. The temple has fulfilled its purpose now, here and now. And from here on in, it will not be this place, but it will be in me. God's presence has entered his temple, and he is about to put everything that went wrong with creation right again. God's first image bearer, Adam, who failed so miserably in carrying out God's mandate, now God's second image bearer, God's second Adam, Jesus, is now here in the temple, and he is establishing everything that Adam failed to establish. See, the temple never worked because it was never meant to work. The temple was always a pointer. It was a sign pointing 
It was an example. It was a picture. That's why when the first Christian martyr, Stephen, when he was being stoned, he said this in his last sermon. David, in Acts chapter 7, David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, listen to Stephen here, the most high doesn't live in temples made by human hands, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Ask the Lord, could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands Make both heaven and earth. Do you realize, this is so profound. Do you realize what Stephen is doing here? He's taking us right back to Genesis 1. John Walton is correct. What Stephen is doing here is saying, did you actually think you could build me a temple with your human hands? Don't you realize that I build the temple? And then he says, heaven and earth are my temple. That's what John Walton saying Genesis 1 is doing. And then he even says, God says that heaven and earth are my temple. Could you build for me such a resting place? No. Didn't my hands make the temple? And what did he do on the seventh day? He rested in the temple. Now, God is establishing his temple with his people, the real temple in Jesus. In John 2, all right, Jesus says, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. Jesus becomes the temple of God. God builds his temple, which is the whole heavens and earth, and then he builds it in the way that we see in the ancient cosmology where they would build their temples, in, in, in a microcosm kind of way where people could actually come and meet with their God. And now that's exactly what God does is he builds the cosmos temple in this microcosm type way in the person of Jesus. So that is the place where we meet God. Not in the Jerusalem temple, not in an Egyptian pyramid, not in a Mayan pyramid or any of these other temples which were meant to symbolize that. But now in Jesus we really do find the place where heaven and earth come together. And then even more profoundly than this, Jesus calls a people, us, the church, and says that we now become his body, which means that we now become his temple. Paul writes, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. Not a temple in Jerusalem. His people. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. So it goes all the way back to creation. Where God's image bearers. God's people. Who were to be his image bearers in the temple. To look after and reign over his creation 
that went awry with Adam and then went awry over and over again with the whole temple story now has been fulfilled in Jesus, the true image bearer, but it doesn't finish with Jesus. Jesus now rescues all of us to say, you now have been restored to be God's image in the temple once again. You now are restored to be the image bearers of God. And what's the role of the image bearers of God? It's our job, it's our mandate to be God's image bearers to take care of his creation. That's why the idea that Christianity is about escaping the earth and going off into some heaven is completely the opposite of the biblical message. We've got our directions wrong. It's not about going up. It's about God coming down. From the very beginning, God's intent was to come to earth and to set up his presence here through his image bearer's humanity so that through us, and this shows us just how high a place humanity has in God's creation so that through us we would govern the cosmos. That's how important the earth is. I mean, think about how unique the earth is. The, the, the billions of planets and even galaxies that are being discovered right now. And yet, in the vast arrays of the cosmos, there is not one other planet that has ever been discovered that comes even close to Earth. How unique is that? To me, it is beyond the possibility of fluke. That this one planet is so different, so special, so unique, so precise. And then add it to that, on this one little microscopic planet in all of the cosmos, there are these people called human beings. If the planet alone is not so unique in all of the cosmos, think about how unique a human is. The mind of a human. There's no other creature on earth or anywhere that we know of that is anything like a human. In fact, the Bible even says that we humans will one day rule over angels. We have a higher place in, in God's ranking of things than even the angels. Do we understand that when you look at all of that, even from that perspective, this earth is the center of God's governing activity. And he chooses to do it through image bearers called human beings. See, the medieval understanding of things from a philosophical perspective, theologically, was correct. What's wrong is that they then tried to make scientific definitions of that. And those are different categories. See, in the medieval understanding of things, the earth was the center of creation. And then like an onion, everything went further out like that. And in many ways, theologically, that is the way God sees things. This earth is not just one random dot in the cosmos that has equal equivalence to every other dot in the cosmos. This earth is God's dwelling place throne room from which all other creation is ruled from. God's not out there somewhere. It's about God, its intent to reestablish his presence here. And then through us govern the rest of the cosmos outwardly from here. 
That is the trajectory of a biblical understanding of things. And we, when we realize this, it has a completely profound implication on how we approach life. All of a sudden, creation matters. All of a sudden, bodies matter. And the resurrection has a huge implication. All of a sudden, object, objectivity matters. Evidence matters. History matters. Science matters. Art matters. It's why the church always has placed much more emphasis on evidence and creation and thinking and objectivity than it has in the mystical stream. The much more subjective stream. Christianity is not about intangible, dreamlike worlds, but about the really real world and it being restored. And we being the very ones that become part of God's process of restoring his creation. That's why every time we pray, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. The, the hope of that prayer in the Lord's Prayer is may your heavenly reign come to this earth. So that one day there will no longer be this separation between your heavenly realm and the earthly realm. But now your earthly realm has come to earth. It's why one day the heaven and earth will be resurrected alongside of our bodies. So that as the Bible says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll no longer have separation. Christianity is not about people God's people leaving the world to go up to heaven, but about God coming down to this world and establishing his head office here and ruling through his people, his image bearers. Revelation says this. John, same one who wrote this gospel, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Pictor, pictorial language of the new Jerusalem, that's us. That's, that's God's people. I saw... God's people coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Do you recognize the directions here? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, coming down to the earth. And then when that happens, there's this loud voice that shouts out, now God will live with his people. The temple has now been established. God and his people will be one. There's no more separation between heaven and earth. There's no more barrier because of sin. God has fixed things and we are one. That's why we also read in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And now there's no longer a curse on anything. In the new world, there's not going to be an actual physical temple because the Lord... God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and in the new creations, there's no more curse on anything. And that is why Wikipedia is correct. And there's at least enough Christians out there to know this to keep Wikipedia correct, because Wikipedia is governed by the people. 
And so good on them uh, that obviously when Christians go to Wikipedia to try to change this, there's enough that keep putting it back to saying in the Christian Bible, concepts about the future kingdom of heaven are professed in several scriptural prophecies of the new or renewed earth said to follow the resurrection of the dead. That's what the biblical hope is. The heaven that we are ultimately waiting for is a new creation where God reigns from his earth through his image bearers, his people, to govern the cosmos. We find this all throughout the Bible, particularly the books of Isaiah and Revelation. This, in Revelation, is the Jesus who says, look, I'm coming soon. He's coming soon, not to leave again. Jesus doesn't say, I'm coming soon so we can go again. Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon to take up my permanent residence on earth. Last time I came and I went away, the second time I come, I come to stay so that it'll be on earth as it is in heaven. And I will make everything right. And you will rule the galaxies as my image bearers for all of eternity. And so we respond by saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We can't await that day. And if we're going to be ruling the galaxies as God's image bearers, it's not going to be retirement. It's going to be work to do. Work that God gave us right at the beginning when he made us and put us in the center of his creation and said, now you govern and take care of my creation. We're going to be restored to do exactly that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are... And the fact